fourth watch starts now. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight is going to be an excursion of antiquity, unearthing the mysterious history and phenomena surrounding the controversial Shroud of Turin. We'll be talking with one of the world's leading expert researchers of the Shroud and asking the tough questions. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode The Shroud of Mystique, with special guest Russ Briault and special guest co-host Kay Carswell. One of the controversial icons in the modern world has raised many debates and concerns among Christians, and for good reasons. We're talking about the Shroud of Turin, and I, for one, have a hard time accepting its authenticity. Or plainly stated, I have a hard time accepting that this is the actual burial linen of Jesus Christ Yeshua. First of all, Italian scientist Luigi Garlicelli created a copy of the Shroud by wrapping a specially woven cloth over one of his students. He then painted it with pigment, and then he baked it in an oven, which he called the Shroud Machine, for several hours. Then he washed it. His result looks like the cloth that many people through the centuries have believed is the actual burial shroud of Jesus Christ. And this was broadcast on a CNN interview. He actually said this. He said, what you have now is a very fuzzy, dusty, and weak image. Then for the sake of completeness, I have added the blood stains, the burns, the scorching, because there was a fire in 1532. Garlicelli says his work disproves the claims of the Shroud's strongest supporters. But even with the modern recreation of Luigi Garlicelli, there are still some strange supernatural qualities of the Shroud of Turin that he could not in fact recreate. So it's apparent that the Italian scientist didn't actually disprove the Shroud with his experiment. So why do I wrestle with accepting the Shroud as being genuine? Because of the words that I read in the Bible about the clothes that Peter found in the empty tomb. Let's go directly to the account of the empty tomb of Yeshua. John chapter 20 tells us the account of the empty tomb following the resurrection. I'll just read verses 5 through 7 real quick. Peter and another disciple had gone to examine the scene. And this is what the scripture records. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying yet went he not in. So one of the disciples looked in and saw the linen clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, but he didn't enter into the tomb. And then we get to verse 6. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and he went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So Peter ran into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes, which were for the body. And then he saw the napkin, which was the cloth that was used for wrapping Jesus' head. To me, this seems to be contradictory to the idea that the Shroud of Turin is authentic. The Shroud is a large single piece of linen with the entire image of a person on it. 
head and body. But the Bible describes that Yeshua was wrapped in at least two different cloths, and specifically that his head was wrapped in a separate cloth napkin. I believe that every part of the Bible is important, and God never left out any detail in regards to things that we need to know. This has really created a challenge to me in accepting the Shroud of Turin. But I have to say, there are still some heavy arguments on both sides of the debate. Now, some of you may be wondering why I would have a leading expert on to talk about the Shroud, despite the fact that I don't believe it's authentic. Well, upon researching the Shroud, it's clearly an intriguing artifact of sorts, as there are some very supernatural and paranormal qualities about it. And this definitely gets my attention. And I enjoy researching mysteries in the supernatural and paranormal front. But it's no secret that this mysterious shroud has many people buzzing around the world. But while I don't agree with all of Russ's views on the shroud, I found his presentation to be extremely fascinating and even compelling. So when Kay Carswell invited me to be part of this interview, I gladly accepted. So we're in for a really interesting discussion tonight, for sure. And I'll be joined by my dear friend Kay Carswell of Deception Detection Radio as a special guest co-host and Russ Brialt, who is not only an interesting speaker, but a greatly respected researcher of the Shroud. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and go to the line with Russ Brialt and Kay Carswell. Russ, Kay, welcome to the Fourth Watch. How are you all doing tonight? Doing great. Thank you, Justin. It's really cool to have you guys on, and this is going to be an exciting show, having a panel tonight, a little different flavor than what we're used to here. So, Russ, could uh, before we jump right in, could I get you to tell us a little bit about the Shroud of Turin Education Project? Sure. The Shroud of Turin Education Project is, uh, is really, uh, I have an 11-word mission statement, which says to advance the knowledge of the Shroud to a new generation. And uh, there's just, uh, you know, millions and millions of people um, out there that have never even heard of the Shroud. And yet it remains one of the one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time. And it's just a fascinating thing. And uh, and I'm always excited, uh, as I as uh, Kay mentioned in, in the introduction, or uh, is that uh, I can't. I can't prove that the shroud is authentic. I just think it could be. And so let's explore that mystery and take it as far as we can go. Excellent. So why don't we start by talking about the history and the origin? What exactly is the known history and the known origin as of now? Well, the uh, shroud certainly has a documented history uh, in, in, in Western Europe starting around 1353. Uh, when it uh, when it first appears in um, in Lurey, France, that's L I R E Y, and it's um, and uh, and it was uh, publicly exhibited in 1356, and then uh, later moves to Chambéry, France, and then um, in uh, 1450, and then ultimately to Turin, Italy, in uh, in 1578, and uh, so it has a documented history in Western Europe for about 700 years. And then, uh, but then prior to that, it has a it has a history in uh, in Eastern Europe, well, uh, uh, namely Constantinople, and then Edessa, which is a which which today would be in southern Turkey, but uh, then it was its own separate city state. And um, so there's the uh, history of this uh, of a mysterious cloth with a mysterious image of Jesus on it that was literally in Edessa for about 900 years, and then in Constantinople for another 250. Uh, so it has a very long history, and, but it hasn't all been in just one place all this time. Now, just something interesting I want to throw out there. 
when we start talking about Turkey, uh, when we go into the scripture, we're told in the New Testament that the seat of Satan is in Turkey. We know there's been a lot of very, very strange things happen in Turkey. Uh, there, there's connections with Zeus and other things in Turkey. There are some people who have opinions, of course, about this shroud having ties to occultism. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that that's uh, rather ludicrous, in my opinion, because the one thing about the shroud is that it appears to support orthodox biblical Christianity, and that it, in that you have, you know, all of the all of the wounding pattern as we see described by Jesus in the uh, or 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 described in the four gospels, you know, starting with a with a very clear series of puncture wounds around the head from an apparent crown of thorns and and you know over 120 scourge marks on the body from where the body was scourged or and then uh, uh, nail wounds in the wrist, nail wounds in the feet, wound, uh, wound in the side, and uh, you know bruising in the face. Um, so you know so just I, I have a hard time believing that that Satan would do anything that glorifies. Jesus, uh, much less God. And, um, and then you have this inexplicable image on the shroud, which, uh, a lot of folks feel uh, could be the result of the resurrection itself. And, and so, uh, you know, we know that the first proof of, of, of the resurrection was when Peter and John ran to the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. And so, uh, so it was the empty burial shroud, which was the first proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. And, uh, so, um, anyway, so, I mean, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of theories related to the shroud. I mean, you get into all kinds of new age nonsense and everything else as, as it relates to the shroud. But, yeah, but it, as far as I'm concerned, I think it fully supports biblical orthodoxy. Now, you made a statement about it's, it lines up directly with the wounds that we've read about in Scripture. Now, I think that's interesting because we know from from the text of the Bible that Jesus suffered a, a much more gruesome crucifixion than, say, the average Joe that was being crucified. So I think that's interesting, and, and that's coming from a skeptic. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you mentioned the wounds lining up with, with Scripture. That is interesting, but at the same time, I still think that things like that could be doctored. Um, and, and I want you to talk. We're going to get into well, some what of would that. Be the, what would be the point? I mean, if you're if you're talking about it as being some kind of a, uh, you know, coming out of the occult or some kind of a some kind of a satanic thing, uh, then then, you know, then then certainly uh, I, I would see that the shroud glorifies Christ because there are thousands, if not millions of people who have who have who have come to faith uh, because of the shroud. When we get back into Nazi Germany, um, and we, we know that the, the Nazis were extremely involved in the occult, secret societies, um, they would send groups of people out on expeditions. And we've even seen some of this reenacted in some of the Indiana Jones movies. Um, the Nazis were fascinated with any type of potential powerful relic or object of antiquity. So it seems that even people in the occult would want to have their hands on it. Well, right, because uh, you know Hitler, in his in his depraved mind, uh, uh, believed that that uh, that Jesus was of an Aryan bloodline, and that uh, didn't believe that he was Jewish, and which is why he was after the spear of Longinus, which was in Austria, 
and which is why he uh, had uh, where him and Himmler both were searching for the Holy Grail and that he even did come looking for the shroud itself in 1943, only to find that it wasn't there. It had been secretly moved. And uh, so he was after these things uh, because he did think that they would give him additional power. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you're. You're right about that. And that's where I'm kind of sitting today. I see it as something that people, they're so fascinated by anything, uh, not just in the Christian religion, but in other religions, people are fascinated. And, and it's okay to want to investigate these things for sure, but some people want them particularly for power. And I guess that's kind of where I'm, I'm seeing at this point. I, I, there's so many arguments and people trying to get to the shroud, people trying to get to the grail, uh, find the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, I guess that kind of leads us into the idea of the conspiracies. What types well, of conspiracies have been involved in the shroud since it's been changing hands over the years? Well, that's an interesting, uh, you know, thing. It's, uh, you know, there's, you know, I think, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the word conspiracy is the, is the, is the word I would use, but, but, you know, when the, the, the shroud was clearly in Constantinople in 1204 and was stolen during the fourth crusade, now it's interesting that 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 the that the Fourth Crusade was authorized by Pope Innocent III to go down to the Holy Land and liberate the Holy Land from Muslim control, but the man who was financing this crusade was the was the Doge or the King of Venice, and he had built a whole fleet of sailing ships to sail the 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 Crusaders down to the Holy Land, <laughs> but he was running out of money. And so he forced the Crusaders under threat of starvation that to divert to Constantinople first. And, um, um, and so they did. And so in 1202, they kind of, they kind of start arriving in Constantinople. In 1203, they begin building settlements. In 1204, the war begins. And so this is one of the biggest battles of the, of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. It took several months for the Crusaders to breach the walls of the city. You know, three concentric, sixty-foot-high walls, and when they finally did, they they got into the city. They burned half that city down and stole everything of value—all the silver, all the gold, all the ivory, and all of the relics of the things that were that that were there in Constantinople, and including um, what is described as 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 the um, as the burial shroud of Jesus. That wrapped him before, you know, after his death and before the resurrection, and so and so here we have a description of this of this linen shroud that that disappeared uh, during this during this crusade. Now, what's interesting is that because the Pope did not authorize the destruction of Constantinople, he issued an edict of excommunication on anyone who stole relics from Constantinople and demanded that they be that that they be returned. Well, what's the chance of that happening? Here, I mean, here you are. You just spent three, four years in, um, involved in a war, and you finally come away with all of this, all of this booty, and including these prized relics, because the French were notably after the after the relics, and it's. Um, and so uh, what, what happened is one of the one of the crusaders involved in this crusade was called his name is Othon de la Roche. And he was given Athens as a as a fiefdom. And there are uh, and there are written documents of having people having seen the shroud. There's four documents of people having seen the shroud in Athens. 
1205 and 1207. And, um, but then, but then, you know, with this edict of excommunication, this shroud goes underground. And, uh, and so it kind of disappears from about, uh, 1230 to about 1350. We really don't know where it was. And it's in this period of time in which it's possible we think that it may have been kept by the, uh, by the Knights Templars. And, uh, so that's kind of thickens the plot a little bit. And then it, and then it reappears in, in Besançon, France in 1350. Uh, and it's, and, and it's owned by a woman named Jean de Vergy. Well, she just happens to be the great, 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 great granddaughter of Othon de la Roche. And, um, and so this was obviously kept in the family. And then, um, and, uh, so this is, you know, so the, the shroud kind of pops in and out of, of, of uh, history, but it, it, it definitely goes underground after it was stolen from Constantinople because of that edict of excommunication. At what point did it actually get into the hands of the Vatican? Well, it's really never been in the hands of the of the of the Vatican. In in um, in, in fourteen fifty, it was sold to the uh, to the Savoy family, and all the kings of Italy have come out of the Savoy family. And it was so it was owned by the king and um, and was and, and it was the possession of the king until from 1450 until 1983, over over 500 years. Now, the the Catholic Church has been the custodian of the shroud. They have been involved in actually exhibiting it and housing it and protecting it. But they have only owned it since 1983. Uh, when the when the last king of Italy, who was kicked out of Italy in 1947 after World War II, and he was living in Portugal, um, he was dying, and he and he willed the shroud uh, to, at that point to the current living pope, and so Pope John Paul had two exhibitions on his watch, Benedict had one on his watch, and now Francis just just had one on his watch that just got over with on June 23rd, and. Um, so that's kind of the ownership. But it's, like I said, it's never been owned by the Catholic Church until 1983. Now, you were able to see it while it was in Vatican care. Is that correct? Uh, it, it's always been, at least as long as it's been in Turin, it's been in, it's been in the care of the, of the Diocese of Turin, Italy, uh, which is a kind of a city in the northern part of the country. It's actually where they held the... Uh, the 2006 Winter Olympics. It's the home of Fiat Motorworks, and um, so it's kind of a big industrial city. It's really not a big. It's really not a tourist city. It's um, it's uh, but it's been there, and uh, and they've had. I've I've seen it three times, and it's uh, it is you know it is it, it is a remarkable thing, and you know I think what people have to realize about the Shah, why there are those of us that are intrigued over the possibility of authenticity is that, you know, I mean, it's like we're not idiots here. I mean, you have a whole pattern of blood stains, and this blood has been determined by several blood chemists to be actual blood from actual wounds, AB blood type, human human DNA. I mean, and so then you then you have the image. Well, the image is inexplicable. The, the, there is no visible trace of any kind of paint, ink, dye, pigmentation, stain. There's no artistic substances on the cloth to account for the image. You see, that's your that's your either or proposition is that this this either is the burrow shot of Jesus or it's not. 
And if it's not, then what is it? If it if it is not authentic, then it must be the work of an artist. There must be some substances on here to account for the image and the blood, and there or there must be at least some process that we can determine by this that this that this alleged medieval artist must have used, and yet we can't find any. And so it's uh, and so when you look at the image, it is purely superficial. So in other words. You know, for anyone looking at the shroud, you're going to Google it or go to you know, my website, shroudencounter.com. If you look at the shroud, you'll see there's a whole pattern of burns and patches. That's the first thing you see, these, these big triangular shapes and dark markings. Those are burns from a fire in 1532. And then there's a whole pattern of water stains. And then there's patches that were used to cover up holes made from the fire. Now, if you take that cloth and you flip it over, You'll see the whole pattern of burns. You'll see the water stains. You'll see the blood stains. But the one thing you will not see on the other side of the cloth is the image of the man. The image of the man is a purely superficial phenomenon affecting only the top, the top one to two microfibers of the cloth. Now, not, not threads, microfibers. So each individual thread is made up of, of about 200 microfibers. So this image literally resides on about 1% of a single thread. So if you take a razor blade, shave the surface of the cloth, that image is gone. And so this is, a, this is an astounding attribute. And, and, and not only is this a very clear attribute, but the, but the intensity of the image is identical, top to bottom, front to back. I mean, you'd almost think you'd need a piece of technology to do this. And so, and so these are, these are some of the, you know, uh, uniquenesses of the, of the shroud image and its whole pattern of blood stains. You know, for instance, another interesting anomaly is that, is that there is no image under the blood. Um, so which tells us that, that the, that the pattern of blood stains got on the shroud first, followed by the image. Well, that makes sense if it's authentic. Good Friday followed by Easter Sunday. You know, but it makes no sense if it's the work of an artist. And there's been any number of attempts to show how some alleged medieval artist, uh, you know, you know, crafted the shot image. And, you know, half a dozen attempts or more have been made to, to, to show how some artists did it. And they create their image. And most of them are pretty terrible. There's a there's a few that look decent from a distance, but they all break down under the microscope. But they all make the same mistake. They craft their image. And then they paint the blood where it's supposed to go. No, no, no. You've got to have your pattern of blood stains first. Then you craft your image. You do that and you've accomplished something. And so, so this is the, uh, this is another, you know, it's a, just one of these, you know, strange things that the order of events, blood on the cloth first, then the image. Now, I, I, I want to pass the mic to Kay here in a sec, but Kay, please forgive me. I just, I feel like I, I really have some questions I just want to bring out real quick while they're hot. No, you're fine. I'm fascinated, so please continue. So, Russ, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Shroud dates pre-1532. That is inarguable. We know, historically speaking, because of the fire that took place in 1532, we know that the Shroud predates that, Correct. Yeah, well, actually, we know that it predates 1204. Right now, again, you know, when the FBI is talking about counterfeit dollars, when they're when they're going around and they're they're working with with groups of bankers to say how to spot a counterfeit, 
you know, they don't teach them the things that are, that are counterfeit. They teach them the authentic version. They say, get so familiar with the authentic version completely that when you come across a counterfeit, you'll spot it instantly because you're so used to the authentic. And I, yeah. I think part of my skepticism comes here. And let me just say, I really appreciate this discussion. And I think it's very fascinating, very interesting. Um, but I, I'm just trying to get through some issues here. Um, when we do consider the the means that the FBI teaches us for counterfeiting and, and, and detecting them, the challenge that we have with this shroud is that we don't have an authentic that we can prove is authentic to compare it to because it's a one of a kind. When we have, I mean, there's some counterfeit artwork out there that is just so absolutely not only beautiful, but it is almost identical. I mean, some people would even say they've got counterfeit artwork that is identical minus a, you know, a couple different patterns or maybe uh, the texture on a certain paint surface. I just, I guess I'm, I think that somebody could have been crucified and that this could be a shroud of somebody else because after Christ, after Christ was crucified and, and resurrected, uh, I wouldn't doubt the fact that there were others that were treated just like that uh, based on his, you know, based on what they did to him. I think they might have continued a tradition possibly. And I can't prove this historically. I'm not I'm not teaching this as doctrine, but it wouldn't surprise me if they, they did make a crown of thorns for somebody else and that they did, you know, that, that the shroud of, of, you know, we'll just say John Doe. Um, would have appeared to be very similar to this. I mean, it was not uncommon. Let me let me, let me adjust that. Um, the there are hundreds of burial shrouds in museums around the world. Um, now there are very there's almost no Jewish burial shrouds to be found, uh, and I'll tell you why. Because the the Jews would typically use ossuaries, and as you know. Um, what would have happened if Jesus didn't rise from the dead on the third day, he used Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? Right. So what they would have done, he, they would have laid his body in the tomb on that, on that stone sepulcher. It would have been wrapped in a linen shroud. They would have sealed that tomb shut and they would have gone back a year later and gone. And, and then now, now the body's completely decomposed and they would have taken all those bones and put them into a limestone box about the size of an ice cooler, and they would etch on the outside of the box whose bones these are, and they would stack those ossuaries in in the in the uh, in the tomb, so you could have multiple multiple people that have been you know were that are or were buried in that in that tomb, and that's why we don't see any Jewish burial shrouds. Okay, because they use ossuaries, but we got plenty of Egyptian burial shrouds. And and it's and then all we ever see are just smudges of decomposition where the body decomposed uh, over the years. We see, number one, we see no stains of decomposition on the shroud. Number two, on any other shroud that we found, there is no image. Uh, It's just smudges. And as far as we know, uh, you know, wrapping a shroud around a corpse. It's not going to produce an image. In some rare instances, a corpse can superheat up to about 115 degrees, but that's not nearly enough temperature to scorch the image or to scorch the cloth. And so you 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 really have this 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 very interesting situation here with the shroud is that you have a whole pattern of blood stains that clearly. It appears to be because this cloth is wrapped in corpse, but the image itself is inexplicable. You have this 
full frontal and dorsal image of a crucified man that's not the result of substances. And um, in, in, in fact, I mean, the, uh, the, the chemistry of the image is the best chemistry we have is that the way that flax was prepared back in the day is that they would have soaked it in a soap weed detergent. And this detergent acts like a fungicide and a preservative, and it's, and they would be soaked in there for days and take it out and stretch it out onto the grass or dry out naturally in the sun. And in the evaporation process, there is a razor thin layer of sugar compound carbohydrate that binds itself to the entire cloth, all the threads, all the fibers, all of it. Think of it like a soapy film. Well, something has interacted with this carbohydrate layer, but only in those areas immediately surrounding the body. So the image appears on the cloth because of a discoloration of the cloth from something having interacted with this carbohydrate layer, not because of any substances applied to the cloth by some alleged artist. And so, so again, you know, it, it's the image is not the result of having been wrapped. In other words, we. If you wrap a shroud around a corpse, you're not going to replicate what we see on the shroud. Now, even if it was, let's say it was someone of a different um, ethnic background, let's say that it, it was not a Jewish person. Say. I mean, corpses just don't make images on burial shrouds. I mean, what what would be the circumstance? So there, mean, there's definitely an anomaly about this. I mean, clearly yeah, speaking. Because, because you see, you have those stains of decomposition. So you can allege that maybe it was the beginning of the escaping of uh, of like ammonia gases and stuff like that or, or the uh, sweats and aloes. But you have to understand is that this image is uniform in intensity, top to bottom, head to toe, front and back. You know, front image, back image, uniform and intensity. And so there's no way that any kind of gases or any kind of contact mechanism is going to account for this kind of uniformity. You're always going to get smudges or areas of the image that are darker or discontinuous or things like this. No evidence of that. I have to say, you, you know, you've, you've obviously done quite a bit of detail research into this. I mean... I gotta say, it's almost like I'm talking to Indiana Jones right now. This is pretty cool, and you know, <laughs> this, this isn't. This is a phenomenal Indiana Jones story. And I'm gonna say yeah. this though. I mean, there's people that are gonna hear this and they're gonna say, "Oh, why y'all wasting time talking about this shroud?" You know, blah blah blah. Well, you know what? This is interesting. It's raising a lot of buzz worldwide, and it has been since the 1200s. So I think it's a very interesting topic. And I'm quite an adventurer myself, Russ. So I'm, I'm actually enjoying hearing you explain this. Well, Justin, you know, the, 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 I do presentations all over the country, and and the name of that I do, I have a lot of different presentations that I do, but the one that I do the most is called CSI Jerusalem, the case of the missing body. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to have to look for that. Is, is that available on video somewhere? Yeah, you get it on my website. It's called Shroud Encounter, CSI Jerusalem. Very cool. That sounds like something that not only I would enjoy, but a lot of my listeners, I mean, because my show is an investigative type show, and, and same with Kay, so this is really cool. Now, I, I do have more questions, but I want to pass the mic to Kay. I want to I wanna share, so forgive me for going so long, Kay. Um, oh, you're fine, Justin. You asked some great questions. Um, Russ, going back a little bit um, with what you and Justin were talking about, in the beginning, when the shroud was discovered, if I remember correctly, that it, it was a king that had that, and that when he died, that the shroud was stored in almost like a trunk, 
but there was also documents in with that, some kind of a manuscript. And then when the Knights Templar entered into the picture that the documentation came up missing, was that documentation meant to authenticate the shroud or is there any way of knowing? Well, uh, I'm not exactly sure what specific uh, you're talking about. There's a lot of this, the, 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 the shroud has been stored a lot of different ways. And it was, um, you know, for instance, it was uh, it was uh, Othon de la Roche, who I mentioned earlier after it was stolen mm-hmm. from Constantinople, had it in a had it in like a little box uh, uh, that was in um, in uh, in Burgundy, France. And um, the um, it was in a um, it was in a silver box in Chambery, France, when it when it when it caught fire and the top of the silver box uh, melted and burned all the way through the shroud. Um, the. Um, the uh, when the uh, when the shroud was in was in Edessa, it was uh, it was hidden away in a in a box uh, that was sealed up and put above the west gate of the city and then kind of rediscovered around 525. And there was supposed to be some documentation in the um, in the in the box along with it to, you know, describing what you know what this is. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, it's interesting that. From the from the sixth century on, when the when the shroud was kind of rediscovered in in a it was it the uh, the the historical uh, uh, trail would suggest that it arrives in Edessa circa first century, and it's um, and then is 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 there and, and then uh, the legend it's called the legend of Abgar. Abgar is the is the is the king of the city state of Edessa, and and he was dying of leprosy. So you know this is the story. I don't know if it's true or not, but this is the story. And he sends a messenger down to Israel to find Jesus to have him come back and bring healing to him. And uh, but Jesus obviously has other plans, and um, so uh, somehow this cloth uh, comes back to Edessa along with the apostle Jude Thaddeus, and um, and hmm. so this. This cloth with a mysterious image on it is presented to Abgar, who was healed of leprosy. Well, he becomes a believer, and so he has uh, he, and so he, by decree, he says, "All right, we're all Christians now." <laughs> and, and, um, and so they uh, burned all the pagan temples, and, and except for one, and burned all the pagan idols outside the city walls. And and this worked for a while until Abgar's grandson takes the throne at the end of the first century, early second century. And then he doesn't like this Christianity stuff very much, and so he reverts back to paganism. And by this time, the Roman persecutions are sweeping the known world. So this cloth, whatever it was, with this image of Jesus on it, was sealed up in a in a metal box placed above the west gate of the city and put a big stone put in front of it in like a niche and it was forgotten about for about 400 years and then in 525 a severe flood hits that city and they rediscover it now after the rediscovery of the uh, of the of the shroud image or of the shroud it it becomes known as quote the true likeness of Christ not made by human hand and from this point on, all of your Orthodox and later, I mean, your, all of your Byzantine and later Orthodox images of Jesus all change dramatically to conform to what is now known as the true likeness. The true likeness meaning long hair, full beard, large hollow eyes, flattened nose, stylistically uh, 
very similar to what we'd see on the shroud. And so there's um, in, in, in so this is the uh, this is the kind of the uh, beginning of the uh, of the historical trail. It, it, it picks up uh, here in the in the in the sixth century, and it's uh, and it's very intriguing and it's interesting that 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 they described it as the true likeness number one and not made by human hands, which goes all the way back to the second commandment: Thou shalt not make any graven image. It's almost like saying, right. "Look, it's almost like we didn't do it. We don't know who did it, but we did <laughs> not do this." And it's uh, and, and so and so it's very. Uh, Intriguing, you know. So uh, this is interesting. Um, I'm an art school grad. I'm I'm into film production, broadcast, and I had to take a class. I had to take three classes on art history, and I just I got so tied up on this one topic that my teacher had presented, and I had to just go in and do a lot of research because I didn't believe her. I thought it was propaganda. She said that the image that we know in Roman Catholicism, um, the icons. The, the image that we have of Jesus actually dates back to images that we have of young Apollo of the, of the, the Greeks and the, the polytheism. And I didn't believe it. She showed some images on the screen and, and it was, it was pretty, pretty mind blowing, but I didn't believe it. And so I, I then got into a deep research and I decided I was going to write my term paper on this topic. And I could not disprove that the image that we have of Jesus today, so so we're told, the likeness of Jesus today, um, it, it, there's so many uh, parallel similarities with that image and the images we see of Apollo. Well, actually, the uh, Apollo is usually uh, shown as short hair and clean shaven, um, which is uh, very interesting because a lot of the early depictions of Jesus prior to the sixth century do show Jesus with short hair. And um, and clean shaven, much like you would see with the uh, with with uh, with Apollo. But then, after the true likeness is rediscovered in the sixth century, all of a sudden everything changes and changes dramatically. To almost all of your of your icons of Jesus now conform to this long hair, full beard, you know, large eyes, uh, flattened nose, and several other different uniquenesses, and so. And, you know, prior to the revelation of the of the true likeness, uh, depictions of Jesus, whether it's in the catacomb walls or whatever it is, are all over the board. You know, you have side views, long hair, short hair, bearded, beardless. There is no consistent way of depicting Jesus until the true likeness comes along. And then after the sixth century, everything conforms and there is almost almost no depiction of Jesus other than what we than what seems to be you know, similar to the shroud. Um, Russ, there's a, a question I have for you, and this is something that goes back several, several years. Everything I know that's in the Bible, it has a meaning, and it's not put there for any other reason than for a purpose. And John 20, 6 and 7 is a verse I've never quite understood, and to me it surrounds part of the shroud with its mystery. It says, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard that the napkin that it actually was folded and that the, uh, the shroud was just laying there 
as it was when they put Christ in the tomb. What do you think the significance is of this scripture? Okay. The the napkin is most likely what is known today as the Sudarium of Oviedo, which is in Oviedo, Spain. And it's been there since the 7th century. And this is a a, a a cloth about the size of a small bath towel, uh, you know, 20 by 30 inches. And uh, there's there's no image on it. There is a, a pattern of pleural fluid and also a pattern of blood stains. It's mostly pleural fluid. That's about well, one part blood, six parts of pleural fluid, where the belief is that this cloth was wrapped around Jesus's face um, probably while he was still on the cross after he died, because now they're waiting. They're waiting for Joseph of Arimathea to get permission from Pilate to to take the body and and put it in his own tomb. And so it would have been a Jewish tradition, probably a tradition in most cultures, in fact, to cover the face of the dead, because you can imagine one wants to look at Jesus lying, hanging up there with blood and stuff coming out of his mouth and his nose and everything. So they, a woman, one of the women probably asked the centurions and say, you know, may we cover his face? And so put a little step stool up to the, up to the cross, wrap his face with this, with this cloth and, and then wait for Joseph to get back with the, with the, uh, with the Roman guard. And then, um, this cloth, uh, would have remained on his face until they got him to the side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the tomb. They would have laid the body out onto the bottom half of the shroud, take that cloth off of his face, roll it up, place it next to the body because there's, because there was blood on it. Anything with blood has to remain with the body. And so, and then, and then wrap the rest of the body lengthwise with the, with the shroud. So that's the, that's the theory behind what this, what this napkin is. And it, it would not have remained on his face because this thing was just covered with blood stain and pleural fluid. Uh, the only thing that would have been permitted by Jewish law to be on his face would have been the, the Jewish talit or the prayer cloth. But as far as we know, that, that was probably stolen or gambled away by the, by the, by the Romans or something. So that's not what this cloth is, this, this Sudarium of Oviedo. And there's a, yeah, and there's a, there's a 94% correlation with the, with the blood stain patterns we see on the shroud. You can also correlate it with blood types. AB, both have AB blood type and also correlated by, by, by pollens that are in, that are in common, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, with Israel. So there appears to be a link. Now we don't, we have not been permitted to do a DNA link and we may never be able to do a DNA link because the church has not authorized any additional DNA analysis because they're too freaked out that someone's going to try to clone Jesus. So there, so there's probably never be any more DNA analysis done. Uh, do you think that part of that, the Catholic Church being so nervous about that, is the fact that when the testing was done on it, and there was the the program that you were on about bringing the image to life to 3D, mm-hmm. um, the fact that they did cut into the cloth. Do you think that's probably one of their fears is that maybe more damage will be done to the cloth? Uh, I just I just think it's the fear of the law of unintended consequences that 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 you uh, 
you know, that uh, you you have this <laughs> you have this DNA from the shroud <laughs> that someone thinks is Jesus, and and you know they get in there secretly after after midnight and say, why don't we clone Jesus? You know, <laughs> what, what a great idea. You know, I mean, it's like you just don't know. And I think that uh, you know, I think it's I think it's too too seductive of a thought for the uh, for the for, for them to take the risk. Now, the, the DNA thing is really interesting, and that's that's something that's really been on my mind about this. Um, we talk about the DNA that is on the cloth. Um, even if we could get a DNA test on that, we couldn't necessarily link it to Jewish DNA because currently Israel will not let us excavate. I say us, not me. They won't let the geneticists uh, excavate bones of ancient Israelite tombs or burial sites because they say that it's it's holy ground, and so. The, and that's actually posing a huge problem right now in the whole Khazar debate uh, over the the people in Israel. Uh, the geneticists have tested so many. I, I, I don't have all the numbers here, but uh, the the Israeli geneticists are saying that 89 to 94 percent of their own people have no genetic ties to ancient Israelites, and they challenged the government. They said, just let us pull up some bones, just to, just enough to get a DNA sample, so that we can put this whole thing to rest because it's causing so much controversy right now. Uh, I mean, people are dividing over this, even in the church. And so we, we, we really can't get our hands on ancient Israelite DNA um, according to their government. So we even if we were able to test the DNA of the shroud, uh, we, we still might not be able to get a, a positive match on ancient Israelite DNA. Have you have you thought about that? Well, that, as I always say, you know, um, you know, even if we, you know, just just because we get DNA from the shroud doesn't mean that we have the DNA of Jesus. <laughs> so you can never do a match. I mean, you know, okay, great. We have the we have the DNA of the man who was in the shroud. Well, you know, so what? I mean, what are you going to compare it to? You know, so um, so it's uh, so that's why we can never prove it definitively. I mean, um, so so from that standpoint, I always say that. Listen, don't don't get hung up because the shroud can never replace faith. Amen. Um, you know, Amen. I mean, it's uh, I mean, you know, the proverb, I mean, it, it, it may help lead someone to water, but it's not going to force them to drink. It's um, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it again, it's no substitute for faith. Um, um, my concern with the DNA from the shroud is we all know that there's been there's been some strange things happening in, in the Vatican over the years. What if there was DNA taken at some point? I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the prophecies of the popes. Yeah. You know, let's say that Peter the Roman, whoever he's going to be, the anti-pope, whatever people want to call him. um, What if he decides that they want to take DNA from the shroud and create this hybridization, which would come to become as what we know as the Antichrist? Have you have you considered that as a possibility? Not. Not really. Um, I, I, I think the, I think the Antichrist is uh, is alive on the planet now. And, you know, and he may be in the White House. I'm not sure. I'm sure a lot of people will agree with that. <laughs> so I, I tend not to. I think uh, I think we're so close to the edge. You know, regarding biblical prophecy, that uh, the Antichrist is is about to step onto the stage uh, within within minutes. What is your stance? I mean, if we are that far along in biblical prophecy, what does that mean for the 
Pope who's in, in office right now? Does that mean, does that put him um, as either being the anti-Pope or possibly the predecessor to the anti-Pope? Well, certainly he's the 114th Pope, which makes him the last Pope. Uh, it's uh, according to their own prophecy. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, there may be one more after him, as you said, the, uh, you know, Peter, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I, uh, I don't know what to make of Francis. I will say um, that, you know, you generally have to be nervous about a pope that is popular and a, um, you know, the, uh, because there's nothing popular about scripture. There's nothing popular. I mean, you know, Jesus was a stumbling block. And, uh, you know, so I, I will say this. Let me let me mention to you something I'm working on for this prophecy conference I'm going to in, in August out in Colorado Springs This is the. A prophecy conference put on by Prophecy in the News, and that'll be August 6th, 7th, and 8th, and your listeners should try to uh, get there. One of the uh, reasons, I, I've, I've been at this Prophecy Conference now for, uh, this, this is be my uh, be my fifth time uh, being at being at there at the conference, and um, you know, one of the things that I've always said is that the, is that the message of the Shroud is past, present, and future. It's past because it speaks to a historical event, and that event is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's um, and I and I and I say this in my in my in my lectures. I say, you know, you know, there are millions of people in the world who say that, you know, you know, why do I have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead in some supernatural resurrection? Why can't I just believe that he was a good man who did good things? And I submit. To you and anyone else that you can believe whatever you want, but if that's all you believe about Jesus, it's not enough. Because if and now you might say, well, why is that not enough? Because if Jesus is not risen, he's dead. And a dead Jesus can offer you or me nothing. Only a Jesus who has risen from the dead, who has defeated the power of death, only that Jesus has the right, the authority, and the ability to offer you or me anything beyond this life. That's why we have to start with the shroud as a as going back to the past, validating a historical event, but the shroud is also present in that in the now we see very clearly on the shroud the price that was paid, and you know a you know, crown of thorns scourging all over the body, you know nibbles in the wrist and the feet, wound in the side, bruising in the face. It's all there. Everything that Jesus paid for our salvation is on that shroud. And um, and then but it's also future and it speaks to a future event. Now, now, one of the interesting things is that um, one of the theories related to the shroud image is that it was is that it is the is that it is the result of some radiant energy mechanism, heat, light, radiation. I'm in for light. Uh, and now why I'm in for light, because everything about. The shroud seems to be consistent with scripture. So why wouldn't that be consistent with with scripture? You know, there were no eyewitnesses to what happened to Jesus in the tomb. So if you're going to ask the question of what happened to Jesus, you have to answer it by other references. And fortunately, we have a few. The Mount of Transfiguration, which occurred about six months before Jesus was crucified. He was up at the top of a high hill. Peter, James, and John are at the bottom, and it says that his face was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun itself, and his clothing became like as, as white as light. So Jesus transformed into a being of light before the crucifixion. And then how does he appear to Saul, who becomes Paul, 
is, as recorded in the book of Acts, several years after the crucifixion, in a blinding flash of light, so bright that Paul, that Saul is blinded for three days. And so you'd have to assume that just, to, just doing a straight Bible study, that the very split second that Jesus' soul came zooming back into his lifeless body, that there was an explosion of light and then gone, in my view, because remember, Peter and John ran to the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there and believed that he had risen. So his body was gone. And so the uh, now, but you know, so what's interesting when you when you're talking about light, you know, uh, researchers at the ENEA, which is a European research institute, um, been experimenting with ultraviolet lasers, and they published in a peer-reviewed journal in 2011 that a 40 nanosecond burst on an ultraviolet eczema laser achieves the the very same depth. That we see on the shot image, about one to two microns in depth, and the same coloration that we see on the shroud. Well, this is incredibly cool. This is the first time we've ever been able to replicate any aspect of the shroud image using light. Now, the reason this is seriously cool is because the best description of what happened to Jesus in the tomb comes from the Apostle Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says that he's not even talking about Jesus. He's talking about you and me. And he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep or remain dead, but we will all be changed. How? In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. And then he goes on, for for that which is corruptible must put on incorruptible. That which is perishable must put on imperishable. Paul is talking about a transformational event in the future that hasn't happened yet. Now, you know, evangelicals will call that the rapture of the church. And, um, and it's a future event. My view is that's exactly what happened to Jesus in the tomb. Now, how do we know that? Because Jesus is described as the first fruits of the resurrection. If he's the first fruit, that means we are the rest of the fruit that comes later at the end of the age. And so, and so, so, and so I'm saying to myself, in like, in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, Maybe a 40 nanosecond flash. Now I have to, I have to tell you what else I'm working on for this shroud conference is that I've been, um, I've been looking, exploring into this person that's found in Ezekiel and Daniel. And he's known as the man clothed in linen. He shows up in Ezekiel chapter 9, 10, and 11. And the next time we see him is Daniel 12, and that's it. Now, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is having a vision, and he sees. Now, this is right before the destruction of Jerusalem by by the Babylonians. This is right around 586 B.C. He's having a vision, and in his vision, he sees six angels with slaughtering weapons in their hand. And then suddenly he sees a seventh man among them, a man clothed in linen. And all of them are summoned into the temple. And, and God speaks to the man clothed in linen who has, who has what's called an, an, an ink horn or a writing kit attached to his waist. This is the, it's an ancient version of a sharpie. It's some kind of writing instrument. And he's, and he, and, and he's told to do this. Go out. And mark on the foreheads of all those 
who mourn and lament over all the detestable things that are being done in the city. So he goes out and he marks on the foreheads of all those who mourn and lament over over how far Jerusalem has fallen away from God. And he comes back and says, I have done as you said. Then God speaks to the six angels with the slaughtering weapons in their hand. And he says, go forth, show no mercy, take no compassion, kill everyone else, man, woman, child, old men, babies, kill everybody, except do not touch anyone who has the mark on their forehead placed there by the man clothed in linen. Okay, so this is like, wow, that's powerful. Now, what would that was? That's what that's what Ezekiel saw in the spirit. What was happening in the physical is that the is that Jerusalem was being attacked by the Babylonian army, and all those who were marked on the forehead, those were the people that were brought back into Babylonian captivity, including the prophet Daniel, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then and so so they all go back to you know which is modern day Iraq, but was then it was Babylon, and um, and so. Now, the next time we see the man clothed in linen is in Daniel 12. And this, this is at the end of the age. And, and, and so, and so God is speaking to Daniel. He says, seal up this secret, or this, this, this mystery of the book or, or, or seal up the scroll until the time of the end where there will be great tumult and, and great distress among nations as has never been seen before. And he says this. He says, He says, the wicked shall remain wicked, for they will not understand. But but, but those who are wise will understand. All those whose names are written in the book shall be delivered. I'm assuming that's the Lamb's Book of Life. And um, And so, which is interesting, that this man clothed in linen shows up only two times, and both times at judgment. The judgment of Jerusalem and the judgment at the end of the age. Now, how does this relate to Jesus? Well, most, most commentaries say that this is Jesus who's showing up in the Old Testament. Now, how does this relate to the shroud? Okay, very interesting. You know that there's almost no description of what Jesus wore in life. I think at one point he said he wore a seamless tunic. There's almost no description of what Jesus wore. But we know exactly what he wore in death. He was wrapped in a clean linen shroud. Even another translation was wrapped in a fine linen shroud. All four Gospels tell us what he wore in death. Now, this is interesting. This man clothed in linen only shows up at times of judgment. Well, that's what the crucifixion was. Crucifixion was, was, was God's judgment against sin hurled at his own son. And his son takes all of our judgment upon himself. And then he's wrapped in this in this linen shroud that literally, so his clean, pristine, clean linen shroud becomes a filthy rag in our place. You know that Isaiah says, your righteousness is as, is as filthy rags under the Lord. So his linen shroud becomes a filthy rag in our place. And so now... Now, what's interesting, what I want you to notice, now you, no one's looking at pictures, if this was a radio show, but if you look, if you Google the face image on the shroud. Now, you know, here, so here you have this front and back image of a, of a, of a you know, almost six foot man. You know, 
very, very clearly crucified. But the most prominent feature of the shroud is the face. Everyone zooms in on the face. Every time you see a picture of the shroud, you see a picture of the shroud face. But the most prominent feature of the face is this blood stain right in the middle of the forehead. And it's as if Jesus himself is marked with his own blood. Now, what's interesting in the in the natural image, that blood stain looks like an E or or a Greek epsilon. Now, that's the first letter of the Greek word that spells sealed. Now, in the photo negative, when you go from at least using film, when you go from from a natural image to a negative image, it you kind of. Everything becomes backwards. It's like it's it like it, it becomes a mirror image. And in the in, in the negative, that epsilon becomes the number three on his forehead. Now, so it's as if Jesus himself is marked with our with his own blood. Now, I, 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 this is um, I have uh, I have three daughters, my oldest daughter is various she's the one I talk about spiritual stuff with all the all the time. And I explained all this to her and I and I you know to, to explain to her what I was working on. And she said, Well that explains it. And I said, Well what do you mean that that explains it? What are you what are you talking about? And she says, Well I had a dream last week. Now this is several weeks ago now. But she said, I had a dream last week and he said and I dreamed that my mother in law, her name's Karen she comes over to the, and they, she, they go to Bible study together. And she comes over to the house and she has a pot of alphabet soup. We go, we don't say, and we, and, and we don't speak to each other. We just go upstairs to my room and pour this alphabet soup out onto the bed. <laughs> I said, well, it's a good thing that was a dream, right? <laughs> so, so in her dream, they begin looking for letters and they spell out the word Ezekiel and the number three. She has a prophetic dream about about a week before, and this is about nine days before the infamous Supreme Court ruling on on June 26th. Um, and um, and so she has a prophetic dream confirming what I'm working on here. This man clothed in linen is very very significant. Uh, he only shows up in judgment, and and clearly, you know. Jesus was judged in our place, and he was the man wrapped in linen in his death, but he will be the king of kings and robed in linen when he comes back to put an end to all this nonsense. I think this is a very, very significant thing, and it's um, so that's what I'm working on for the prophecy conference. The, the, the thing that I get from Ezekiel is that, you just look at the range of emotions within the church itself over this ruling. And who are the ones that were marked with the, by the, by the man clothed in linen marked on their foreheads in Ezekiel's time? Those who mourn and lament over all the detestable things that are being done in it. There are far too many in the church who are rejoicing over these things that oh. they should be mourning and lamenting, and I'm I'm quite fearful for uh, of a large group of 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 believers, and I I, I have a, I have a fear that they're raising their hands and saying, "Oh, we're so proud to be in the Church of Laodicea," 
And, you know, that's not the church you want to be in. No. You know, there's only no. one church you want to be in, and that's the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, which was the promise because you have kept, the, because you have, you know, kept the word of my patience. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth or or another translation is because you have persevered. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth. And mm-hmm. so. You know, nobody wants to be. You, you, <laughs> we don't want to be Laodicea. <laughs> so no, and also the the significance of Ezekiel and in modern times. This is this is just this is confirmation right here because yeah, you know, I, I preached a message. Uh, I guess it was a few weeks back, and it was right before the hearing, but it was right around the time that Bruce Jenner was getting you know treated mm-hmm. like a beauty queen and he was a goddess and all this other stuff, but. I preached a message on Ezekiel and how when God came to Ezekiel, he told him, if you don't go and warn the people that they will surely die, right? You know, their blood is on you. But if you go and tell them and they don't repent, their blood is on them. But if you go and tell them and they do repent, it's a blessed situation. Right. And, you know, I, I preached this message that here we are in a time and, and it was right before the, the ruling. But as Christians, when we see such iniquity taking place, you know, we have two, we have three options. We can keep quiet. Okay. Or we can revel in it like what so many churches are doing and they're welcoming it and they're, they're blessing it in their flesh. Or we can do what the Bible talks about and we can warn them because we have the truth. And if we don't warn the people knowing what they're doing, then their blood is on us. We as Christians have opportunities to go and share the gospel and even call people to repentance and love. But we're not seeing that very much. We see it a little bit, but like you said, we're seeing, I mean, there's an outpouring of wickedness in our country right now. Now, it's interesting in Daniel 12, again, where the man clothed in linen shows up, except this time at the end of the age, he says to Daniel, the wicked shall remain wicked. Now, and then we have that verse in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Everybody knows that. If if my people who are called by my name, right, who shall humble themselves and pray, mm-hmm. and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Okay, nobody knows what wicked means anymore. You know, my 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 liberal friends will say, oh, it, it is a it is a wicked thing to uh, to deny a woman's right to choose. It is a wicked thing to not let two people who love each other marry each other, re- re- regardless of their sex. And, and it, it, see, no one knows what wickedness means. But I'll tell you what wicked means. It comes from the word wick and a wick is twisted. And so. And so a and so literally it means a twisting of the truth, a twisting of the word. That's what wickedness means. You don't have to be a murderer and a rapist to be considered wicked. All you have to be is someone who is twisting the truth, twisting the word to 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 suit your own lifestyle or or your own person or, or your own agenda. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, that even That's goes true. back to the commandment of. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain because right. people don't people say, oh, that means, you know, I can't cuss with Jesus's name or, you know, any other version of, of uh, terminology like that. But still, in reality, using the Lord's name in vain would be twisting, basically twisting in his name into your agenda. And it's right. a perversion. It, it, it's creating a vain use of the name of God. And we're seeing that in so many churches. They're not using the name of God in profanity. They're literally taking God's name and they are twisting it into their agenda, which is unbiblical. So that that's right on point there, Russ. Right. 
Yeah. Well, they think that this is how I see it, that people think in their own minds that what they're doing is right. They figure, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to love each other, be there for each other. But what they're not realizing is that God has set the law and that's what comes first. And just because you're abiding in God's law and does not mean that you have to go out of out of that area. You don't have to approve of someone's sin. And by doing that, it's wrong. But people think they're doing the right thing. Right. And I think that's Satan at, at work. I wanted to mention this to you, that from an apologetic standpoint, um, you know, Acts chapter one, verse three says this. After his suffering, he showed himself to be alive through many convincing proofs. Now, obviously, we know that most of those proofs were post-resurrection appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. But the first proof was the, was the linen cloth lying there on the stone sepulcher. That was the first proof that Jesus had, had risen from the dead. So to me, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, 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 it's not a stretch for me to believe that this cloth was kept, maintained, preserved, and passed down from one generation on to the next. Now, what's interesting is, now I, I learned this piece of history about a year ago, I think it's very interesting, is that the church historian Asubius, who was the official historian of the Emperor Constantine, writing in the 4th century, and he he just, he says this, that that about two years prior to the to the destruction of Jerusalem. So this would have been about 64 AD. Because remember, the Jewish uprising occurred in 66, lasts for six years, and then in 70 AD, the uh, the temple was destroyed. Over those six years, about a million Jews were killed. But in 64, all the believers were alerted. It says by the Holy Ghost. Now, whether that was a dream or a vision or an angelic visitation, I don't know. But they were told to leave. They were told to leave and take with them all of the holy implements with them. And so they went to three cities. They went to they went to Pella, they went to Beirut, and they went to Edessa. And it's interesting that Edessa is where the story of the shroud picks up. And I'm just so I have I don't know if that legend of Abgar story is true or not. But it seems likely, just looking at this piece of history from Vesuvius, that it was probably taken to Edessa around 64 A.D. when they got the word. You know how Joseph, you know, the, the, the stepfather of Jesus got the word, get out, go to Egypt? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I think they got the word to get out of Jerusalem. And, it's, um, and I think that's really, really, really interesting. And, uh, Kay, you and I talked about this on, on, uh, on Monday. Now, mm-hmm. now think about this. So Peter and John, okay, when um, there are there are four words used to commonly describe what the shroud is. It's called a relic. It's called an artifact. It's called a mystery. It's called a symbol. Symbol is the official word of the Catholic Church. They call it a symbol of Christ's suffering worthy of veneration. So they don't call it a relic or an icon. They just call it a symbol. Now, I contend that all those words are fine. They just they they describe what the shroud is, but they fail to describe its purpose or its function. 
And so I began looking at this and I'd say, you know, we need a whole new concept. So I began looking at scripture and there are, there are four words that are used to describe what Jesus accomplished for us. And these words are bought, purchased, redeemed, ransomed. So he, so we've been bought, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed. Ransom is a word Jesus used. Now, all four of these words are words of transaction. A trans, in other words, a transaction has occurred. A payment has been made on our behalf. Now, when you go to a store and you buy anything, you know, what does the cashier always give you? A receipt. Uh, a receipt. And what is a receipt? It's a proof of purchase, right? It is a record of the transaction. And when you, and what's on the receipt? The price you pay. So I contend this, that when Peter and John ran to the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there, they saw the proof of purchase. They saw the receipt. And when they opened it up, they saw the price that was paid. In fact, I contend that not only is the shroud a receipt, it's an itemized receipt documenting everything that was paid. The crown of thorns, scourging all over the body, wound in the, you know, wound in the side, the wounds in the wrist and the feet, bruising in the face. Everything that was paid is on that receipt, stamped in blood that says paid in full. We know that there was his burial clause in the tomb, and everything you just said is valid for the actual shroud that Christ was buried in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So whether this is the real thing or just a reasonable facsimile thereof, it's <laughs> <so laughs> true. No, when and, you look at it, it's supernatural. To me, yeah. that's how I see it. It's supernatural because there's here we are in this day and age and we cannot figure out how this was done. If you fold the shroud in half, it, it's about it's about seven feet each side, right? Which just about fits when you look at the so the height and the and the and the width fits almost perfectly into a standard size door. And you should see this on an image on, on like a PowerPoint. It's really stunning. And it's saying and it's really interesting when you look at the verses of scripture where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, you know, strive to enter by the narrow door. And so he is, he is the door. I just think it's really interesting that the proportions fit right into a standard size door when you fold it in half. It's just, you know, it's a lot better to understand if you see it. Now, there are some concerns that I do have, and I think I'm, I know I'm not alone in these concerns. Um, I'm instantly reminded back to the brazen serpent that when the Israelites were being rebellious and sinful and they were the, the Lord sent the poisonous snakes to bite them and they had to, as an act of faith, they had to look upon this brazen serpent that Moses had put up and they were healed. And we know later on that people began to worship it as a relic, as an artifact, um, because they began to worship the creation that the creator made, but they were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And we know that even that same symbol is now used in, I mean, multiple religions have picked it up, different, different views, but we know it even now is on the sign of many, you know, hospitals and ambulances. My concern is that we live in an age where people are putting so much emphasis on items or relics, antiquities, 
and I'm very interested in these items. I'm very interested to research them, and, and I really appreciate the way you've presented everything tonight. But there's going to be people out there, and I'm sure there's plenty of them, uh, possibly, you know, in, in some of the heavily uh, cultivated Catholic communities in, in Poland. Um, and I know that, that European Catholicism does have some differences from American Catholicism. But there's going to be some people that are going to literally worship this thing. Um, even in America, there's going to be people, they're going to just get really uh, emotional and they're going to tend to put so much emphasis on the object. Well, I, I, I would just go all the way back to the to the what is a common objection about the second commandment, which says, you know, thou shalt not make any any graven image. And I, I think that that was pretty clear what what that commandment was about when Moses, you know, comes down from the mountain and he sees Aaron, his brother, having crafted a golden calf. And everyone was dancing around it wildly as if that calf represented anything in heaven. And it's um, and so and so, you know, Moses gets so uh, hacked off that he throws down the first set of commandments, which, by the way, is a pretty good joke. Um, who's Who's the first man to break all ten commandments at the same time? <laughs> Moses. <laughs> so, oh, that's good. So, that, that's that's actually really good. I've never seen anybody worship it. I think they they see it as something that obviously represents that which is in heaven. Um, so I don't know. I understand it's a concern, but I've never seen it happen. I I, I will say this that I have said uh, many times that that perhaps the shroud was preserved for this time in human history, because it's only been in the 20th century that it has been kind of revealed through modern science. And here we are in the 21st century at a time when we communicate more with images than we do with words. Mm -hmm. And so was it was it preserved for this time in human history? The man wrapped in linen, who's about to be the man clothed in linen, appearing at the end of the age. There's a lot of phenomena surrounding it. It's definitely one that's fun to discuss and it's fun to research. So I really appreciate all the research that you've done, Russ. Uh, one more time, I just wanted to say you can go check out shroudencounter.com. And what was the other site, Russ? Uh, shrouduniversity.com is more of an academic site. All right, guys. Well, uh, it has sure been a pleasure. And uh, just God bless you both. And I hope you'll have a great night. All right. Thank you so much. God bless you, too. Good night, everyone. Right. Bye-bye. Good night. Well, that was definitely an interesting discussion, and the mysteries surrounding this strange shroud are pretty apparent. And if it weren't for my understanding of John chapter 20, I'd say the evidence would have me convinced otherwise, honestly. You see, Russ has done an amazing job of researching and presenting his research, and I would say to everyone listening, you've now got the information to decide for yourselves on whether or not you believe it's authentic or not. But now I want to talk about something that's definitely 100% authentic. And that is the fact that we can be reconciled unto God through Yeshua. But even furthermore, that we can be a friend of God. And this is often something that is simply overlooked. But as we're going to see tonight, being God's friend and understanding what that means should bring a fresh look at one of the characteristics of true salvation and how it's a friendship that should truly be enjoyed. So let's talk about enjoying God's friendship. I want to take you to James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. This is what James wrote. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. You see, folks, you are a friend of God if you love him and you obey his word. I can't imagine life without friends, true friends, those amazing people who love you through your failings and who support you through your joys and your heartaches. They're the people that you've committed yourself to, and they've committed themselves to you as well. True friendship is a blessing that should be treasured. I remember my dad telling me something about true friends back in my childhood, and I never quite understood it until I became a man. My dad told me that most of our friends in this life aren't true friends. And he followed that up by saying that if you can count the number of true friends on two hands, you're extremely blessed. You see, we really don't have as many true friends in this life as we think. But a true friend will always be there for you. They won't tell you what you want to hear, but they're going to tell you what you need to hear. They will impart upon you tough love, but will also have your back when you need it. Through the good times and the bad, a true friend is going to love you. They'll carry your burdens and they'll rejoice in good times as well. They'll hold you accountable and they'll work to build you up in character and integrity. Those are just some of the characteristics of a true friend. True friends are without a doubt one of God's greatest gifts in this life. But there is an even greater gift. Friendship with God himself. Jesus spoke of such a friendship in John chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. And he described it as a friendship of intimacy, mutual love, sacrifice, and commitment. In verse 14, he says this, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. We see that strange conditional word in there, if. He says that we are his friends if we do what he commands us. You see, if you think you are God's friend, but you don't do what he commands you to do in the Bible, you're not truly acting like God's friend, are you? The degree of your obedience to God's word is the true sign of the kind of relationship that you have with God. Obedience to God's word defines a good relationship with him, period. That's the kind of friendship that Abraham demonstrated when he obeyed God and he prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac was the son through whom God's covenant to Abraham would be fulfilled. Killing Isaac would have violated that covenant and furthermore would have called into question the character of God because God's word actually forbids all human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 18.10 It took unquestioning trust in God for Abraham to obey God's command. But when he did, his faith was on display for all to see. Getting back to our source text in James chapter 2, the Greek word translated justified actually has two meanings. The first meaning is to acquit or to treat as righteous. But then we see the second meaning and it's to vindicate or to demonstrate as righteous. James emphasized the second meaning. You see, we demonstrate righteousness as Christians when we do good works. When Abraham believed God, he was justified by faith and acquitted of sin. Genesis 15:6. When Abraham offered up Isaac, he was justified by works and that his faith was vindicated. His faith was demonstrated. 
Our works demonstrate our faith. You see, friends, faith is always the sole condition of salvation. But saving faith, real faith, living faith, never stands alone. It is always accompanied by righteous works. As a friend of God, you should treasure and cherish that relationship. And always be careful never to let sin rob you of its fullest joy. Because sin does just that, ladies and gentlemen. Are you a friend of God? Is your lifestyle one of obedience to the word? We must obey God's word. We must demonstrate our faith through righteous works. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and ask that God would shape you into the man or woman that you need to be in order to be a true friend of God. I want to encourage you to pray that you'd be sensitive to opportunities to demonstrate your faith in righteous works and righteous works that will glorify and honor God and his word. Praise God for the privilege of being his friend. This is a true privilege, ladies and gentlemen, and should never be taken for granted. Pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. 
If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends. And my prayer is that you believe on him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.